Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. So welcome all to the Mouthy IP. It's great to have you all back. I, of course, am Dan German, a.k.a. Danger Man. Also with us, we have Sarah Stream, Dr. Richard Hankins, and Kate. So today, we wanted to have another Journal Club episode. Um, I found, this is Sarah, by the way, I found a journal article from JADA, which is the Journal of the American Dental Association, and it is titled Biofilm and Structural Damage of Rotary Cutting Instruments After Five Cycles of Clinical Use and Processing. So I know we've talked about burrs in a past episode and how many of them are considered single use, but I think this study really does a good job of explaining why we would think those things. So this will be um, an opportunity for clarification, Sarah. So as I'm reading the article, the term dental burr is kind of thrown around um, a lot and there are multiple types of dental burrs. Yes. Yes. And so the pictures and the description of these, they are diamond burrs. So these are like metal looking burrs with a point. They look like something that can be reprocessed. Yes. They do. So the carbide burrs have the cutting blades and the diamond burrs are like the um, sandpaper coating. Okay. That's the difference was the sandpaper yep. coating. The sandpaper coating type to me are the, and that's not what was in this paper. They were both in this paper. Okay. So in this study, um, the researchers took diamond or they took different kinds of burrs and they actually assessed how they were cleaned <laughs> um, and reprocessed and then um, after each use as well. So they split these burrs into different groups um, and actually after they were done processing and using the burrs, they looked at them with a scanning electron microscope and then they cultured the biofilm that would have been left over on those burrs. They had eight different categories of burrs. So they had a baseline group um, with carbide burrs and diamond burrs. They had a control group with carbide burrs and diamond burrs, and then their test groups. And the test groups separated the use into um, one reprocessing, one cavity prep, and two reprocessing cycles, two cavity preps and three reprocessing cycles, four cavity preps and five reprocessing cycles, and five cavity preps and six reprocessing cycles. So they kind of um, incrementally went up in the amount of use for each burr. As I was going through this, I had a hard time understanding what's the difference between the baseline group, the control group, and the test group? So the baseline group is straight out of the package. The control group is sterilized once and not okay. used on 
on a patient. And then the test group is broken down into those five different categories. Okay. So one question I have on this point exactly, Sarah, we know that in these BRRRR categories, some can be, they're labeled for multiple uses and have instructions for use to be reprocessed and some do not. So you found in here that these are ones that are labeled for reuse. That's what I couldn't find. And I couldn't find that in this study either. So I think that that's going to be a study limitation. Um, and just for clarification, this study was done in Brazil. Sorry for that digression. Right. That's one of the things okay. I was wondering about is the quality of the material that was used. And if there is like a worldwide consortium, like one company handles, you know, 97% of all of the burr manufacturing in the world, then maybe okay. Or are there different tolerances by, um, you know, European Union standards mm -hmm. versus US versus? So I, I was curious and I was just rereading parts mm -hmm. there to try to find that because I hadn't seen any of that in this. So I was thinking the same thing. You said it better than I could have said yeah. it, Dan. Well, and gosh, I had the exact same thought. All right. So I don't want to digress from Sarah's summary too much, but I do want to point out one of, I think the biggest limitations of this is when we're assessing um, manufactured goods in a, a clinical study, you have to name what you're studying. You have to name who made it yeah. and they don't. They just said, we're evaluated from the same commercial brand and manufacturing batch. And so- how generalizable is that? I have no idea. Yeah. I feel like any company, if we took this to them, they'd say, well, those aren't our burrs. Our burrs are way better. Right. Well, and I would think if you were trying to do this study, the manufacturer might not want you to say that, right? They don't want the electronic. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you, they put, they make their product, they put it out into the world. You study their product. I feel like with, I, in doing infection control studies, we're constantly assessing um, brand names and naming the brand names. And it's always important because hospitals want to know if they can extrapolate your data to their hospital and they need to know what you're using. Um, and they need to understand how that correlates to what they have. So and, I thought that and, was the huge weakness of this study. And I would also comment that some manufacturers would look upon that as an opportunity and that these are one use pieces use them buy new ones increases our revenue because they didn't comment really on what they are out of the package it's like this is how it the, the it deteriorates and why you can't reprocess it after after use so, and that's where, like, since this study was conducted in Brazil, like I, this is Kate, I look at things from the perspective of in the United States, we use the standards that say in the United States, we can only approve things based on the manufacturer says you can reuse this if you follow these directions. It's totally in the hands of the manufacturer to say how to do that. I don't know if it's the same in other countries. But that is that to Dr. 
Hankins point like that they're the ones who should tell us that this is exactly how to do it um and so again without mentioning the name it's hard to tell but I was wondering is the rule the same in Brazil like the approval for products or is the expectation that these things uh they're approved because they drilled the hole the way you would expect a hole to be drilled and it's up to the person who's using it to decide if it should be reprocessed you know, that would be a very different use understanding than what we use in the United States. I'm going to, I know I don't know for sure. I'm going to guess that other countries have some sort of entity like the FDA that will approve devices for use. So that's, I think we talked well about some of the limitations here. I think it's a very interesting question, right? Like if you look at things under electron microscopy, it, you know, like visualizing what debris is on a piece of equipment and testing it to show that there is debris on a piece of equipment is very interesting. And I think there's a huge yuck factor, but what we don't know is the mouth. And I think part of the way we've kind of, um, the gatekeeping on a lot of dental infection control is, the mouth isn't a sterile place. And so if there's this debris on these pieces of equipment, clinically, is it relevant or is it not? And so it's very interesting in the way it's showing that there's stuff stuck to it, but we never really got to the question of, is it clinically matter? And so I think that the authors did relate that in their discussion, um, but I thought that that was pretty interesting. Dr. Hankins. Um, I was hope I had some thoughts similar to what Kate was touching on, but I was curious if you wanted to go through the rest of the me methods and the analysis that they did. So we went through um, the different test groups. They listed out their processing steps that they used to process them which from what I can see are pretty standard as far as dental reprocessing. Um, they did their scanning electron microscope views of each of the burrs. And for that, they used five independent examiners who were with the researchers to help them evaluate those. Um, they also did a microbiological analysis of each of the burrs. So they were able to culture um, some of that bio burden that was on there. And um, I'll let Dr. Hankins talk about what they found. Yeah, so they found Micrococcus luteus, they found Staphylococcus epidermidus, and they also found Staphylococcus warnii. And so they found three different uh, Staphylococcus species. Or they found two Staphylococcus species and then Micrococcus luteus, all of which are notably like skin flora, which I found interesting. On one of those uh, photos, I could have swore that I found a spaceship too, because it looks like the moon's surface. That's uh, impressive resolution. Um, in in this study, I hope that everybody listening to this goes to our show notes and looks at this study because they have the scanning electron microscope images in here. And I think it's fascinating um, for two different reasons. 
So the first, which is more um, like procedurally relevant, is that it shows the wear and tear on a burr at, even after a single use. So, you know, even if you have a burr that is rated to be used multiple times, it rotates at such a high speed, there's going to be damage to it. And that can affect your clinical practices down the line. The second really relevant reason is, um, especially for the diamond burrs, it shows the loss of diamond particles and how that bio, uh, bio burden sticks in there. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the bio burden is hiding when we reuse diamond burrs. Diamond burrs look like sandpaper. Mm -hmm. And to anybody like outside of the dental realm, looking at that piece of equipment, if we were to guess, you would be like, wow, I don't know if I could get that clean because there's so many uh, dips and dives on the surface, right? It just doesn't look like something that lends itself to multiple use and reprocessing. So it's not surprising at all that the surface is changing. Can you comment, Sarah, and I know that this is asking you to take like probably a professional leap. What would be like the clinical problem with a burr becoming dull, essentially is what they're change, they're saying, right? Is the surface is being worn away. Um, how does that affect practice? Could it hurt a person? It actually could, yes. Um, so with high-speed hand pieces, they rotate it up to 400,000 RPMs, which is really, really fast. And if you don't have a sharp cutting edge, they can generate friction heat very quickly. Okay. And if it gets hot enough, you can actually damage pulp tissue. Okay. So okay. having those nice sharp burrs to be able to cut into whatever tissue you're working on um, will not only help prevent that, but it also gives you a cleaner working space for whatever filling or crown or whatever you're working on. So as a patient, that's when you get the smell of something burning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think so, like one of the most interesting things in this paper, I didn't get, like I said it before, but kind of the yuck factor. If you were to look at any surface, under electron microscopy, you're going to see debris. And I think it's a very interesting way. Like, I believe that they have like a very meaningful pathway here to talk about the wear and tear on the surface, but to make a leap toward like, by looking at it, it looks gross. It would not be the way we would usually clinically study uh, goods that are reprocessed and used on people the way it looks. We just wouldn't do that. So I think as a consumer, and that's like my, again, for listeners, you all know that my experience is mostly in a hospital and acute care world in dental. Like it, it's such a different way to look at it from a consumer perspective. I could see a consumer looking at that and being like, wow, please don't reuse those. That looks icky. I, so I thought the same thing, Kate. I was wondering when we think about reprocessing in a hospital, I've never thought about looking at reprocessed surgical equipment underneath an electron microscope. And so we can say that something's sterile because it's been sterilized effectively. But if I look at it underneath an electron microscope, would I see something that would indicate to me that, well, maybe that's not sterile simply because of what I'm visualizing? So, right. And I think it's not a pathway that's totally ridiculous. Um, I think about, we know of outbreaks with um, duodenoscopes, for example, 
where we believe that part of the problem is biofilms that form inside a scope or on gaskets that have tears where we're no longer like the reprocessing instructions worked originally, but now we have biofilms and tears and gaskets and things that our usual steps aren't working anymore. So I think it's not out of the realm to look at it for, you know, surface wear and tear does cause problems. Well, I when I think of duodenoscopes that aren't being effectively sterilized, I'm thinking about like the elevators that are difficult to clean. And so it's, um, uh, it's, the fact that something's like stopping it from being cleaned, whereas with a the burrs, gosh, it does seem I ah, it is interesting. I like I, I'm trying to like grapple with the two in my mind. I I think it is an interesting correlation. And so, I think so. In my mind, since 2015, since we knew of outbreaks that occurred, and I think duodenoscopes are an interesting place to look because we also thought, hey, we're using this maybe in people's colon and small intestine that we don't consider sterile, but it does touch sterile tissue when, once you get into, you know, the deeper parts of the digestive tract, it does become consequential. Yeah. You, you wouldn't want to be transferring bacteria from one person to another regardless. Exactly. Um, and so I think that point, I don't want to ignore that mm -hmm. in my uh, kind of questions about why wow, that's a very different way to look at a piece mm -hmm. of equipment. Yeah. Sarah, I'm curious, what do you think are the strengths of this study? Um, I was really excited to see a study that actually showed some pictures, even though I know like the visual thing may not be the most effective way, but I think that the, the dental community maybe needs to see the shock factor of it. And even with the wear and tear, you know, I know quite a, Quite a few doctors like to be frugal. We like to reuse whatever we can and save a little bit of money. But it is just amazing to me how much damage can be done after one use that maybe wasn't considered before. So I think I appreciate it similarly, Sarah, in the way that I tend to think in my own silo of infection prevention and control, right? I'm thinking of sterilization as a very finite part of practice. This study is looking at not only the sterilization effect, but also like, is this piece of equipment, um, is the wear and tear affecting patient care, right? Like that, I think makes it a, an easier sell or a winning point because we have two factors we're looking at. And I thought it was interesting that the hypothesis they put forward, like the more wear and tear, the harder the surface is going to be to be cleaned. So they found with more wear and tear, there's actually more bio burden that's built up in those, especially on diamond burrs where the diamond particles have flaked off. That's where the bio burden likes to sit. Um, so, I mean, that in itself would give us an idea of how hard it is to clean those instruments effectively. Right. There's bio burden left over. We can see it. Even though it's gone through the sterilizer, it might be inert, but it's still there. So one thing I did want to touch on is a, what I consider to be a weakness of the study. And I think Kate was alluding to it was as I look at the study, they're looking at visually how effective the burrs are but then they did this entire microbiologic assessment on the side 
which I think the microbiologic assessment was a huge weakness of the study. And I say weakness of the study, unnecessary aspect of the study. I don't think it added anything. I think they could have completely deleted it. And the study is still very effective saying the burrs become worn. They develop biofilms. They're ineffective. I think you could have, they could have just said that. And I think it gets it point across great. I think going into, we cultured this bacteria. This is what we found. Um, I don't think it adds anything. I think as how they were culturing it and looking at, uh, they cultured the bacteria for 48 hours at 35 degrees Celsius, which is what I would normally do in doing these um, colonization assessments. But then they added it to an incubation for 15 days, which I thought was excessive, an excessive amount of time to try to isolate bacteria. And the bacteria they did isolate, they isolated three skin organisms, which I look at and just think, is that contamination? Did they... They're noting it's not oral flora. They noted it in their own paper that this isn't something they really see causing dental infections. Um, and so I think that almost detracts from their study saying, hey, we looked for bacteria and all we found were skin flora. We didn't find things that normally cause oral infections. And then they tried to say where this was found in a clinical setting by saying it was found on clipboards, which seems like a complete non sequitur to me. And so I just, I looked at all that microbiologic aspect to this and thought they could just delete that and focus on burrs when used, become dull, gain biofilm, are uh, not effectively cleaned, the end. So, and I think biofilm is something worth talking about with this group, right? Um, I don't, it is biofilm something that's um, readily known about in the dental community? Um, it is actually. So um, plaque biofilm buildup on the teeth is very common. And that's a really good way to relate biofilm growth in other um, settings or on other surfaces to dental providers because we do we deal with plaque all the time. And the idea with biofilm is where your active bacteria are a little less hardy in the environment usually, right? Like they're gonna be more susceptible like that we can wash them off, scrub them off, um, or even use a chemical to treat them and kill their cell walls, right? Like those active floating around bacteria. And I will want any of you to like jump in and say if I'm too loosely um, interpreting that. But once something's in a biofilm, it's in a much more difficult to remove state. You have layers and layers of pathogens that essentially become hard and difficult to penetrate with steam, enzymatic cleaners, et cetera, that out of the box, something without a biofilm may be easier to disinfect and sterilize. But once we have biofilm building on the surface, our usual practices become, uh, they might not be good opponents for those walls that the cells are building. I, I absolutely agree with that, Kate. Okay. I think you're spot on, Kate. Okay. And we deal with the same thing with dental unit water lines. That I was my where my where my head went first when you say, where do we think of biofilms in uh, dental facilities? I'm thinking dental unit water lines creating biofilms. So, Dr. Hankins, do you feel or do you have an opinion? I shouldn't say do you feel. Kind of leading, isn't it? Um, <laughs> that 
they didn't know what they were going to find when they did all of the additional analysis, not just the visual, but when they did the other analysis. And because they did complete it, they kind of felt like they had to include it. Uh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I'm, uh, I, I've never seen a study like this. And so I can't imagine that they, uh, knew that they were going to find, uh, skin flora. I can't imagine that they thought that's what they were going to do. And then once they found skin flora, I think they were left trying to explain, um, clinical relevance of what the organisms they found. Cause I feel like on one hand, they can make a very strong argument that we're not effectively cleaning these because of how we visually see them underneath the electron microscope. But here, then you have these skin organisms that, well, what does this have to do with it? And so I feel like they're trying to um, make the same explanation when they could just say, disregard this, look at what we're finding underneath an electron microscope. And then I have a follow-up question. So uh, the the language that they used um, in this study, and specifically the conclusion, I thought was very interesting in that it was very clear and concise, except for a word choice of suggests, when they use suggests. Is that just a common kind of not very strong but just a common term to use with this i think so so uh, i i think is they're uh saying suggests in this paper they're doing it because uh they're saying this adds to the literature but by no means is this authoritative um I think when they were originally creating their study, they said that they were powering this based on convenience. And so they're not, they weren't powering this to, to answer this question about is sterilization effective. They're powering it just based on the numbers that they were uh, had in front of them. And so I think they're saying that this is a single data point, um, but by no means the end all be all of this. And so that's where I think suggest comes in. I think that it is a it's a very good reminder of why the manufacturer's instructions for use are so important. Even though we don't know the manufacturer, we don't know the instructions for these particular burrs. If you have a burr that is labeled as single use, you should not be reprocessing it. Right. And that, that's saying, what it I looks good. Probably isn't like, enough. Yeah. Clinical right. And just because maybe you can see with your eyes that it kind of looks clean. That doesn't always mean that it is clean. Sarah, how frequently do you think facilities are using single-use burrs versus reprocessing burrs? I think that a large majority of offices have some sort of single-use burr in their cupboard that they are reusing. Would it be, it would be accurate to say like in most practices, there are many burrs. Oh yes. Many oh, different yes. types of practices. And it will be a challenge to a provider is in the cupboard, looking at what what's there to know, what do I reuse? What do I throw away? And so I what has to be sterilized before the first use? 
because that's also could be a part of it. <laughs> so beyond saying single use burrs should not be reprocessed and used again, uh, would your takeaway from this study be that offices should move towards only utilizing single use burrs and then following the IFUs on, on those because of this? I think logistically that would be the best option for an office. If every single burr is single use, you don't have to worry about picking out the one that's not. How many times have we reprocessed it? You know, those sorts of things. If everything is single use across the board, even if you have 50 different burrs you're using, everybody knows when you're done with the procedure, they go in the sharps container. That's it, the end. That does make sense. Are burrs that um, are thought to be able to be reprocessed, do they have like a a shelf life generally? Is it thought that, oh, after 10 reprocessings, 20 reprocessings, that they are no longer functional and that- Some of them have a, of a specified shelf life like that, like, you know, two, three, five uses, whatever. Um, endodontic burrs and endodontic files are the same way. They have, um, you know, some are single use, some you would be able to reprocess, but only maybe two or three times. So if you have those, you have to find a way of marking those burrs. That's my question. How do you keep track <laughs> of that? How would you know? <laughs> I, it, it would be a challenge. Okay. So I can tell you, like, if, if we extrapolate, like things I've seen in other environments, um, like in aesthetic surgery centers, um, in surgery areas, there are some pieces of equipment that are, you can reprocess, but not in a, you know, for many, many times. One of those things are the spacers they use for breast reconstruction or breast augmentation. They have these spacing things that they put in to make sure this is the right size of implant that we'll use. This looks right. Okay. I take that out. And then I proceed with the, the sterile implant that will be forever put in a person. So those spacers, what I've seen, um, probably the best practice I've seen, it's not the only way to do it, but what you would see is that package has a serial number somehow on it, it's tracked. And then in the cupboard, they would say, okay, when um, spacer number 13 comes through, they literally have on a chart, this is the third time I've reprocessed it and I only get to go to eight. Um, so somebody has like, it requires a lot of knowledge on the back end of how in those spacers, maybe not all the brands allow eight reprocesses that we can't say it's always going to be eight, maybe some say six. Um, so it's not something that only occurs in dental. There are ways to do it. It just requires a lot of careful tracking, communication, and um, good policies on the back end to make sure you're doing it right. I agree. It, I think in the dental setting, it would be very challenging to be able to do it perfectly. So key takeaways from this lovely journal article is, yes, dental burrs do have wear after uses. So it's a, this shows that in a good way and that bio burden does um, build up in biofilm that you we have to follow manufacturer's instructions for use. They're there for good reason. Those are key takeaways. And I also add in, if you can't find manufacturer's instructions for use, 
for a dental burr, it should be considered single use. Absolutely agree. I think that's an excellent point that it is not then intended to be sterilized for you. <laughs> and based on what we've read and what we've discussed that, you know, we suggest that the listeners look this article up here and the study up and look at it and read it. Absolutely. Interesting question too, that we're doing dental journal club. And um, I think we've had some listeners say that they enjoy that whatnot. And I know on our end, the way we look at data is evolving. One question I have for you guys is, they did do a, they, they speciated the microorganisms that came out and they found that it was kind of common skin flora. Are there any organisms that if they would have come out, we would have called like a really big red flag? Like, are there certain organisms that in a dental environment like this, we should be looking specifically at how we grow out the organisms to ensure we're finding that bug? What do you mean, Kate? I'm, I don't quite follow. So the way you would grow it, like if we were looking for Legionella mm -hmm. or non-tuberculous microbacteria, yep. those would like, would, you would need to grow those out for a really long time, right? Those would be pathogens that if they, if they were found in this study, we would be like, whoa, that's a big deal. Are there other organisms that we would say are as high consequence that if okay. we would have seen that, we'd have a big concern? Oh, I'd say if we found that, I'd be shocked simply because of their methodology. I don't think their methodology was looking for those. So I'd be surprised, first of all, that they isolated something that I don't think their methods were set up to identify. Um, I think that's what I'm getting at, Dr. Hankins is uh, that would be a weakness then of the study. If we consider those pathogens to be the highest consequence and to be more meaningful, mm -hmm. then it should have been set up that they would identify that, like that if, if it yeah. was present, we would identify it. And so I, I, I'd i say that uh, that'd be a very difficult uh, setup. So in their methods, they were using... Um, a certain type of auger that uh, I think is just looking for common common bacteria. So to be picking up the staphs, the streps, uh, other things you could commonly find as like an oral flora. Um, right. Legionella would take certain... Um, culture media and so would they do like an additional plate in order to identify that for every single culture and so that would be first off and then if you were looking for non-tuberculous mycobacterium that would be something you'd have to hold for four to six weeks and then have someone specific specifically there to read that and generally you're using certain mycobacterial lab personnel and so that's just opening up like a, a new can of worms and so I, I don't think that was on their radar uh, simply from looking at this. I think that looking for non-tuberculous non mycobacterium is very reasonable, especially in the dental setting, um, but not something they were looking at. So I think that's an important takeaway. If you had um, a 
person who's not as adept with microbiology as you looking at the paper, it would be wrong to say that Legionella and non-tuberculous mycobacteria did not grow. They were not looking for it. Good point. That's a, okay. That's, a that's what point. I was thinking. You, yeah. again, I feel like it's cooking in my <laughs> mind, Dr. Hankins, but I needed you to yeah. say it. So totally could have been there and they just weren't going to isolate it on the cultures that they were utilizing. Right. So I think that's a really important takeaway is just because those things did not come out. This study was not actually looking for that. And we would consider those to be very high consequence, problematic things. But if you had that on a burr, we got a problem. Agreed. Right? I, I wish that, you know, I think that you had said, you know, there aren't a lot of papers like this available. And I think I have very limited experience with this, but when you're setting up a study, you look to kind of past literature to say, how did they set it up? You know, mm -hmm. what can we learn from what they did? And I give credit to the authors. There's not like a blueprint for this, right? So they gave us a good start. But I think if we, if we had people listening in the crowd who were setting up similar things, I think that would be an important thing. We wish we could come out of microbiology studies like this, is those things that are high consequence. We want to be sure that we're identifying if they're present. I'm guessing that this was set up uh, notably as they, they noted their the amount they utilized was a convenient sample. I think the idea of uh, watching most cultures for 48 hours also uh, identifies some bacteria, but also it's, it's easier than uh, holding something in a NTM lab for four to six weeks. Right. And I think that, again, the authors, I appreciate what they did, but that's, I think, my wish for what I wish we knew more about in dentistry. And I know that those kind of studies are not easy to set up, um, but that's if we're being idealistic. Other, other thing I was thinking about is you're asking about certain organisms. I think about um, actinomyces and actinomyces is a facultative anaerobe. And so it doesn't grow very well. We're often concerned about actinomycosis and uh, causing jaw infections. Um, I don't know if they would have identified actinomyces from, from this article either. Also very helpful. Again, like uh, that's the part that it's beyond me, but like the way you target organisms wouldn't be the same, right? Your gram positive things would be targeted one way. Your, your, your aerobes and your, uh, your aerobes and your anaerobes. Anaerobes yeah, are just much, yes. much harder to culture. And so. Just because we didn't find anaerobes. It's not that they weren't present. It's that they were not testing for those. Um, I think their cultured media could could potentially find them. They're just a lot harder to grow. And so unless you have a large amount of them and you're effectively utilizing an anaerobic environment in order to grow them, which from my reading, they didn't really discuss, they wouldn't effectively grow them, Got it. even if they were there. Got it. So I'm hoping that our listeners of the Mouthy IP podcast tell us if they're enjoying the Journal Club articles. I would love to hear from the audience if there are um, articles that they would wish for our team to look at um, and uh, if there's additional topics that they want us to look at in the future. Make sure there's pictures for me. 
like algorithms and pictures. Thank you. Well, thank you everybody for joining us for today's episode of the Mathy IP and our journal club. And we can't wait to hear from you. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.